Today's guest has made his mark as a director, actor, and producer at theaters across the country, notably with his 11-year tenure as artistic director of Atlanta's Alliance Theater, which he immediately followed by founding a new company in Atlanta, True Colors Theater Company. He has directed nine plays in August Wilson's 10-play Century Cycle, including the Broadway productions of Gem of the Ocean and Radio Golf, as well as the current revival of Fences. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I've been looking forward to spending an hour with Director Kenny Leon. It's great to meet you. Howard, it's good to see you with you. Your experience with August Wilson is fairly rare. There are not many people who can say that they've directed nine of the ten plays. Which one haven't you done? The only one I haven't directed is King Haley II. But I would have to say when we did the uh, Kennedy Senator where we did uh, – I served as artistic director for all ten of the plays. And uh, and I've done some, many of the plays more than once. Hmm. Uh, I've done Fences. This is the fifth time I've, I've directed Fences. Wow. Pretty crazy. And uh, I've done a piano lesson a couple of times. But uh, that story goes back to 1987 when I met August Wilson. And he was a little-known playwright, and he had a play on Broadway entitled Fences. And I introduced myself to him. I was a National Endowment for the Arts directing fellow and uh, took a group of folks up to New York to, to see this new play, Fences. And it was an incredible uh, uh, piece of art, and uh, up until that point, I, you know, I was like, oh, I love theater; it's great. It's, you know, the actors, the directors, the lights, the costumes. But that was the first time that I recall hearing the rhythms of my grandmother on stage, you know, and seeing the rituals uh, of of my culture on stage. And I was like, wow, theater can mean more than just a play. It can also be a social vehicle to to uh, bring about change. It could be uh, a, a place where you sit in the dark to see the light. It can be the place you can sit and listen to poetry. Uh, anyway, it, it, it um, that that sort of propelled my professional career. And I met August, and I said... Um, Man, I love your work, man, and uh, you know one day I'm gonna I'm 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 gonna work with you. And um, a year later, later I was appointed associate artistic director of the Alliance Theater Company, and um, uh, I was set to direct my first play there. And 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 I didn't like the play that the company picked out. And I said, Wow, I, let me contact this this writer I just met, August Wilson. And August said, Man, you can do my plays. Whenever you want to, even if they're running on Broadway, you can do them in Atlanta. So what? So my first play at the Alliance Theater as associate artistic director was Joe Turner's Come and Gone before it was even a printed version of it. And August came down and spent, you know, 10, 11 days uh, in tech with me and, and gave me notes. And, um, of course, I, he said, no director wants me to give give notes. And he had a stack of notes he gave me. Then I said, August, just give me two notes. He gave me two notes, which were just amazing notes that I hold to my heart today day in terms of doing his work. And he, one thing he said to me, he said, I'm always interested in who is witnessing the work. I'm always in- interested in what character on stage is witnessing what's happening. So every production that I've done with August, August was, of an August Wilson play, I'm always like, uh, is Gabe looking through the screen door looking at Troy? Is Corey down the alley looking at his father? Is, is Bono the best friend watching? Who's watching this unfold? But so from that date on, August said, I want you to, you, you have the rights to do the plays. And for, you know, you know, eight, nine, ten years, he came to Atlanta, gave me the rights to do the place, even when they were running uh, on Broadway. We got to know each other. Time goes on. Uh, so I did a play every other year almost uh, during my time at the Alliance. And uh, early 2000, he asked me to create a role for Jim of the Ocean. So I played the role of Citizen Barlow. I had never had the opportunity to act in his plays because I was always directing his plays. I had done, I've acted as in the role of Levy for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I think that was the only role I had done. And then one time an actor became ill, and I went on stage with a book in hand and two trains running. Hmm. And I also did the same thing for Piano Lesson, come to think of it. Um, but I created that role in Jim of the Ocean, which was a, 
a blessing for me, working mm. with Mary McClinton, working with August Wilson. And then, you know, a year later, August called me up and said, I need you to come in and take over the play and direct Jim of the Ocean in Boston and, and take it into Broadway. We did that. It was a great relationship. We, we cut an hour and 20 minutes out of the show, I remember, between Boston and New York. It was a great experience. And before the critics came to the opening of Jim and Ocean on Broadway, he took me to the Cafe Edison. We had a meal together. And he said, I want you to do the last one. Hmm. And that was, I was like, wow, August, you want me to do the last one? He says, I, I set out to do 10 plays. He's only worked with two other directors. And he says to me, I want you to do the do the last one. This has been a great experience. And I was like, wow. And at that time, I had just agreed to do um, Tony Morrison's opera, Margaret Garner. And I said, yeah, August, I want to do it, but I know you guys are starting at Yale in April, and and I'm humbled by the, just the request to work, you know, to work together. And I said, but I'm doing this Tony Morrison's opera that has going to conflict with that. And he said, man, you got, that's Tony Morrison. You got to do Tony Morrison, man. And I love that because he, he wasn't thinking about himself. He said, you got to do Tony Morrison. And of course, uh, the show opened at, at Yale and as soon as it opened, he called me up and said, okay, now I want you to come in and take over. Let's take it to Los Angeles. Let's take it into Broadway. And, of course, four months later, he found out that he had the inoperable liver cancer. But even every Monday on my off day in L.A., I would go to Seattle and sit with he and um, his wife and his dramaturg, and we would work on the last play together, uh, um, you know, up until we finished that play. And and so I took it upon myself to say, you know, we have to do all 10 of the plays at the Kennedy Center, which I pushed and fought for, and we did that. And at one point, we talked about the revival of Fences. So this production in uh, 2010, this revival, is really a tribute to August and my work with him and the fact that I've done all of the 10 plays and I've uh, I've worked with him on those last two. But it's more how I grew as a man in those last months of his life and grew as an artist and... um, I can't tell you how proud I am of the work that's on that stage top to bottom. Well, let me let me try to unpack. You've said so many things here. Um, let's go back to when you met August. You, you said you were on an NEA director fellowship program. Mm-hmm. Was something arranged for you to meet him? Did you just see him at the back of the theater and introduce yourself? I mean, you know, you, you're saying – this writer, I mean, Fences was a big hit. Right. It's not, and certainly Ma Rainey's had been successful. So he he wasn't an unknown at mm-hmm. this point. He had not yet probably reached the fame and full respect that, that was accorded him as the cycle went on. How did you approach him or who well, put when, you in touch with him? When you are a National Endowment for the Arts fellow, you have to use that title and as a fellow, I used that to get through doors of many theaters and to meet many, many people. And uh, one of those doors that I got into was the backstage of uh, the Broadway show and met him. And uh, then he did some plays in Pittsburgh. I, I remember going to Pittsburgh to see him in the plays. I, I was the type of young director that I would say, wow, that person has walked that road. Let me get inside of their head. So even like uh, Lloyd Richards. You know, when I became a year later, I became uh, no, two years later. I became artistic director of the Lions Theater Company, and there weren't uh, there were very few African Americans uh, heading major regional theaters. And Lloyd Richards was one of them. And I called Lloyd up, and he didn't know me from Adam, but you know, he said, "Hey," I said, "I need to talk with you. I don't know what it's like to, to you know, to to run a board of directors to be." Uh, uh, minority um, uh, director uh, trying to lead um, this board and trying to lead a community. And uh, he invited me up. So we sat in a Greasy Spoon restaurant and, and talked about the challenges. And I remember Lloyd called the board of directors and said, you know, you guys, if you're gonna, if he's going to be your artistic director, you have to stick with him when times get rough. And I remember him saying that because I remember – those, during those 11 years at the Alliance, probably in that year four, they got kind of tough because, uh, you know, subscription fell down, you know, a couple thousand, and that was a test for the board. And to their credit, they stood up and said, wow, this is, we believe in this guy, we believe in art, we're going to follow him. And then we turned it around, and, you know, it was a, it was a great, a great, um, 
great experience for me at the Alliance Theater. Well, you mentioned Lloyd, and Lloyd, of course, was the person who discovered August first uh, from his submissions to the Eugene O'Neill Theater mm-hmm. Center, where mm-hmm. Lloyd ran the National Playwrights Conference, mm-hmm. and then Lloyd, of course, brought him to Yale for the first full productions mm-hmm. of of those plays, Ma Rainey and Fences and Piano Lesson and Joe Turner, all. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, only three people directed the the ten plays. Mm-hmm. Lloyd did Lloyd did about four. Four or five, and then Marion McClinton did several, yeah, and you did couple, the yeah. last two. Yes. Was there ever an explicit discussion with August about what he wanted from a director or why he chose you three? Or, or in the case of uh, I'll, I'll Lloyd perhaps way. chose August, <laughs> would be the way of putting yeah, it. probably chose each other a little bit. But um, I think um, what I can say about August, he always said, man, I write the plays. I want a director that directs. Because there was like, uh, you know, people would say all sort of things around the country like, August wants a director that he can control and he really wants a director that just does what he says. And what was the case with that, August was always looking for directors that would push him and to do the work. And he said, I need a costume designer that designs the costumes. I need a dramaturg that's dramaturg. I need a director that directs. You know, if we, if he, if he wanted to, if this was a solo effort, then he would write a book. And, um, and I remember, uh, certain times when we were working on Gem of the Ocean, he would just say, well, Kenny, I think, uh, you know, maybe we should do this. And I said, August, just tell me what, what are the values? that you're trying to accomplish. What do you need? And then he would say that. And I said, let's solve it this way. Let's try this. And he said, wow. And then what he really loved about me, he said, I like the fact that you move so fast. So during the previews, we would use, if we had 10 notes, we, we agreed that there were 10 notes we wanted to get to. I would put those 10 notes in the show that night so we could see, like, oh, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. That does work, you know. And so it was really problem solving. And it was like, it was a wonderful marriage, you know, just mm-hmm. because he was writing and I was directing. And then he'd go back and do some rewrites and bring them back. And then I would stage it and challenge him. And uh, I just think that he was the uh, consummate uh, collaborator. And I, he always demanded that you give as much as he gave. And he, it really pissed him off when, when, when actors or designers or directors did not give as much as he gave. And... Uh, that's saying a lot, you know. So hmm. I'm always trying to give that 125%. You said this is the fifth time you've directed Fences. Absolutely. Now, obviously, the opportunity to direct on Broadway, the cast you've assembled are all certainly excellent reasons for tackling that play once again. But five different productions. <laughs> what is it? that draws you to that play and do you in fact find new things each time you know how i was actually surprised when uh, actually i was doing an interview and someone asked me had i ever directed a play before and that was like what three or four months ago and i didn't realize that i had directed it that many times Hmm. because every time uh, it seems like a world premiere. In fact, my goal with this revival was if I can get anybody that's seen the play, anybody that saw the play in 1987, and I match that with someone who's 25 or 30 years old who this is the first time that they've seen it, I want it to feel like a world premiere to both groups. Hmm. And I think Fences offers that. I think it's his most, it's August's most accessible play. Uh, if you got a brother... If you got a wife, if you got a girlfriend, if you got a partner, if you got a friend, if you got a family, if you like to laugh, if you have experienced uh, pain, um, if you're an American, there are so many doors for you to enter this play through. And it speaks to all of us. And for me, uh, working on it, it depends on the casting of the play. The casting of the play makes it very different. When John Henry Redwood played Troy for me, he was very overpowering, very big, very uh, – he moved a little slower than Denzel. Denzel is more athletic. You, When he picks up that bat and says, I can hit 43 home runs right now, you actually can see it. It's like, wow, a few years ago – 
wow, he he was a, he was a, a professional baseball player. John Henry is a big man. John Henry is big, but he has a very different approach. He's mm-hmm. big and towering. Denzel is uh, limber and yeah. athletic, and so if you put uh, Denzel's athleticism with his stage uh, experience, and 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 he loves to be authentic, real, and honest. He don't want no, any part of anything that's fake and phony. So mm-hmm. he's coming from that real solid place. And if you put Viola Davis uh, opposite him. Viola and I have done a couple of shows together, and we did uh, Everybody's Ruby at the Public. But you put her there, and she has a very visceral, raw approach to acting. So you 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 push them, and you have them challenge each other. And so if you if you're looking for the truth with those two actors. It's going to look very different than, let's say, James Earl Jones and Mary Alice. It's just two very different beings. So it's all, uh, Denzel Washington and Viola Davis are, in my mind, inseparable. Mm-hmm. It's like I built the production off of that chemistry, that glue. So then you start adding people to it. And if everybody, Russell Hornsby, who is a leading man type, Russell says, I want to be a part of this. So I, but I, the only place for me to fit is lions. So he takes the roles of uh, role of lion, and he comes in, and because of what he's done with lions, you understand more about Troy and Corey. Hmm. So it's like from top to bottom, this cast is so strong. It's the strongest cast I've had for this particular play, but it all starts with those two people. And then after August finished the 10th play, this is the first time that the play has been produced after he's completed the cycle. Mm. So now you see how the plays talk to each other. And because I've done Gem and Ocean, and I see how important it is to August to play with that other world, you know, it had that metaphysical world when the guy goes through the middle passage, you know, or you you, know, you look at uh, Hambone and Two Trains Running, or you, you look at Hetley and King Hetley II, you know, you start looking at those moments, the, the Juba and Joe Turner. So it makes that last moment in Fences, which is that spiritual, metaphysical moment, it makes that in my mind now, that's a real moment. Whereas five years ago, I created that moment like, oh, it's, it may be, maybe this happened. Maybe Gabe is seeing this. Maybe Gabe is smart. Maybe he's not smart. But in this production, I wanted to realize that last moment um, uh, as a very real moment. And that's only because of what I've learned from directing the other nine plays. You talk about the casting, and over the years, there developed a rep company, it seems, of August Wilson actors, the oh, yeah. actors who originated the roles or did you know major productions. You mentioned Viola Davis, who's worked in, mm-hmm. in some of the original plays, Steve McKinley Henderson, who's Absolutely. in your production. There is that thing of those who are versed in the poetry mm-hmm. and in some cases got it at the foot of the man who wrote it. And then you have other actors coming in of great skill and talent, but who didn't have the same direct connection. Also, Russell Hornsby has, right. has had done uh, Jitney, as mm-hmm. I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a difference between the actors who have already worked out in the the language of August Wilson and then merging in those to whom it may be somewhat new. Much like we always say, not every African-American actor can perform August Wilson. And uh, they are individuals that we refer to as Wilsonian soldiers, uh, those who are versed in those things which are August Wilson. And when I assembled the 42 actors to do the Kennedy Center, the stipulation was, I wanted actors who had at least performed in three of his plays because I find that those people who have performed in at least three of his plays, they f- sort of find that rhythm. They sort of uh, have a, a, a way of getting at the material. You have to develop certain muscles to be able to recite the long monologues. Um, I was not interested in any one person being bigger than that Kennedy celebration. So it was important that everyone had the same rhythm. I told, I hired six other directors. So 
We had seven directors, um, you know, sort of looking at his play, seven guitars. So I said, we'll have seven directors. All directors would have some connection to him in a personal way other than uh, just they like his work. So you had uh, Lou Bellamy, who really worked with August before he was famous. Out of the Penumbra. You know, out of Penumbra Theater. You had Gordon Davison, who represented the regional theater movement. Without the regional theater movement, there would no be no August Wilson. He had a huge impact on the regional theater movement. And you had Todd Kreidler, who was his best friend, and dramaturg. You had myself who had worked on his last two plays and I offered Marion McClinton a, a slot but Marion became ill. He could not uh, uh, do that. So, you know, it's, um, it takes a certain type of actor to do that. But at the same time, we must introduce a new generation to what it takes to deliver an August Wilson play. So you have people like... Um, uh, uh, not Russell, but uh, Jason Durden. You have those folks who are who really want to learn. So the, you put them with Chris Chalk. You put Chris Chalk in a room with Viola Davis and Russell Hornsby and Stephen Henderson. Then they, he hears that musicality. He understands what it takes to deliver. So the rehearsal process for this production of Fences was incredible. Number one, you had all these wonderful stage actors, but you had some who were versed in August Wilson and other other actors who wanted to be a part of that. So you. You put them together and you challenge them and you let them hear that music and you point it out when it's not there. The first day I told them in rehearsal, I said, you know, we're going to create this together. I'm not in the room to reproduce another production of Fences that I've done. But I can tell you this. Uh, there's a certain rhythm to it. There's a certain tempo. I would like Act 1 to be less than an hour 10. I would like Act 2 to be one hour. That was on the first day of rehearsal. Every night... This show comes in at one oh five for the first act and one minute one hour for the second act. Hmm. Every night. They are so precise, so exact every night because they understand it's a certain rhythm, tempo, musicality. Act one is driving at you. It's moving. It's moving. And act two is just you know, it delivers. Hmm. You know. It's fascinating what you describe because the only thing I can compare it to is you often hear people talk about when they do the work of Bob Fosse, mm-hmm. that has to be done, it has to be restaged by someone who was a Fosse dancer. And there's a lineage of the people who worked with him, who learned what he wanted, who then pass it on. And, and this seems fairly unique in the world of playwrights, that there is this sense of heritage and the people who were there at the beginning, the people who worked with him. So it's, it's fascinating mm-hmm. how it how it does all come together. I think, you can, I think you can learn it, but you have to hear it. And right. what August always says, like, act on the lines. Don't act between the lines. Hmm. Don't, don't create moments. The moments are already there. I give you words so you don't have to cry. You know, that doesn't mean you don't shed tears in, in the scenes, but he gives you the words. So that means he wants to hear the words. He wants to hear every note. And because some of the lines repeat themselves, there's a certain beautiful musicality to that repetition of lines. And if you just uh, slide, slide words past or you don't enunciate or you don't have great diction, then that's not going to serve his plays. Hmm. Can we talk for a little bit about Kenny Leon? Yeah, I thought we were talking about Kenny well, Leon. Well, we were talking a lot about August Wilson and, and your approach, but uh, you're born in Florida. Tallahassee, Florida, absolutely. And uh, got interested in theater pretty early, I gather, but boycotted your high school drama club? <laughs> I want to hear uh, about that. That's, that's not in the beginning. That's, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not doing everything from, from, from <laughs> age two up. We, we have to skip ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I would have to say is that uh, when folks say, where did you get your interest in theater, that really came from my grandmother. And I grew up very poor in Tallahassee, Florida. And my grandmother had 13 children, and and I was her 14th because mm. my mother uh, was 15 years old and uh, and when I was born. And so she set out with my uh my sister and brother to go and make a life for us in southern Florida and left me being the oldest with my grandmother, uh, you know, until she can get things together. And I remember sitting on the porch with my grandmother and she would just, we would sit there for entertainment and watch cars go by, you know, and cars in the country go by every 30 minutes, you know, and we would say, all right, grandma, here comes a car. That's my car. And if it was an old beat up car it would be humorous to us. But but that, is, that led to an interest in theater because, I, I mean, maybe... 
Maybe that could be a Beckett play. Yeah. But- <laughs> <laughs> that was interesting, Theonette, because we sit there and entertain each other. She would take the newspaper and she would change things in the newspaper and make them funny, and it drew my interest. I was like, wow, my grandmother's sitting on the porch in Tallahassee entertaining me. Hmm. And then many, many years later, I went to, uh, you know, eventually live with my mother and my stepfather in St. Petersburg, Florida. And actually, that's where Angela Bassett grew up in St. Petersburg, Florida. Angela Bassett and myself were both a part of a program, an uh, upward bound program. It was a, a program for uh, poor families, but who hmm. had college potential. And so every Saturday and every um, summer, we would go to college and study classes and, you know, math and science. And, but we also had drama. And so we would start acting in these plays. So every weekend and every summer, mm-hmm. that's what I did. Angela Bassett did too. And then um, – but when I went to high school, we were the first class to integrate in St. Petersburg, Florida. We integrated the school, Northeast High School. And the, no vision. So if you're an African-American, then you could be a butler or a maid – but you couldn't be you couldn't do any other characters and I was like I'm not doing that so I hmm. led a, a boycott to, uh, against the theater program there but still on the weekends I was performing with Upper Bound hmm. did you get anywhere with the school did well, you get them to I, change their view um, that I didn't get them necessarily to change the view but I ended up becoming student council president of a uh, one of the wealthiest schools in Florida. So we, we eventually changed, got things to change in our last year. But uh, it was a wonderful time in my life because I got to culturally uh, learn about uh, other cultures. And, you know, mm. um, but it, you know, it took a while. You know, it was a, it was a, lot, it was a political moment you know, in the 70s. You know, it was a lot of race riots and all those sort of things. But the fact that I can go to this school, which hadn't ever been integrated, and become an African-American that was a student council president, that was pretty amazing. So when you went to college, did you go for theater? When I went to college, I was a political science major. I went to Atlanta. And I was, I was leaving St. Petersburg for a while, and I said, wow, I spent a lot of time uh, dealing with a culture that is not mine. And I want to go to a historically black college. Hmm. I couldn't go to Tallahassee. Tallahassee, Florida. Florida A&M was the closest college. But that's where my my grandmother and her all her kids, I, there was too much family there. So the next state up was Georgia. So I went to uh, uh, Clark Atlanta University. And they had a program there uh, uh, where the professional actors came uh, to teach the students. So, for instance, that's where I met Samuel L. Jackson. He was a professional, and he would say he would act in a role for three or four days, and then as a student, I would do the same role for like one performance. Hmm. And that's how you learn and grew. And you know, Spike Lee and I were in the same class. You know, it was a, you know at that time I was uh, you know I had friends like Angela Bassett and Sam Jackson, Spike Lee, Bill Nunn. All of us had a little small Harlem Renaissance during that time. And I was a political science major hmm. because my mother said, well, you're going to go to school and do something that I know. You're going to be a lawyer or a preacher or a doctor or a teacher. You know, none of this acting stuff. So that was sort of my my sort of minor. You know, all of my electives were in theater. But hmm. then I went to – I left undergrad and went to almost a year of law school. I left law school because like, this is not what I'm supposed to do. And I ended up doing television commercials because I looked a certain way at a certain time. And, uh, you know, from television commercials went into more acting and eventually directing and producing. Well, how did you – again, you make it sound then directing and producing. <laughs> you know, what was it that you were doing that got you that NEA fellowship? I was doing um, – I was acting in a company, Academy of Music and Theater. And um, where's this? It's no. in Atlanta. Okay. And one of the things we did, we we went into prisons and we did workshops with prisoners, taught them acting, and I did a thing with the homeless population called People of the Brick. And and when we were doing these social things in the daytime, at night we performed in regular plays like Hamlet and Richard the Third and mm-hmm. Moon for the Misbegotten. And um, and uh, so I did this thing called People of the People of the Brick, where I went, went out and recruited homeless people, and um, and you know, said, hey, you want to you want to do this play? And couldn't tell them where I was paying the money. I just had to recruit them. And I worked with a playwright by the name of Barbara Lebo, and we actually uh, got a group of people, and we built a play using improvisational techniques. Built a play about their lives and how they got to where they are. Hmm. And then uh, PBS sort of documented the whole thing, followed us through it. And um, because I didn't know anything about being homeless, I just was, it was a sort of scary thing, too, because there's so many things you, you know, learn about being on the streets. 
And um, eventually we put up a piece of theater and we ended up giving all the participants, um, you know, several thousand dollars a piece to use whatever way they want. You know, some of them got off the street, some of them returned to the streets, hmm. you know. But it was an amazing uh, 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 intersection of politics and art. And um, so I did that and uh, a couple other things. But when I talked with, at that time, um, Timmy Near who became artistic director at San Jose Rep. She was coming through town, and she saw me perform in a play called Split Second. She saw me do the work with the homeless population. She, she knew I was doing work with prisoners. Uh, and she was like, wow, you're doing all, this, all these things. You could, they have a program at the NEA where, you know, and I think you would be great for it. And right and at that moment, she was associate artistic director at the Alliance Theater waiting for the new artistic director to come in. And she said, we'll write this grant, and you can be our resident director, and you can come over to the Alliance because I know you're interested in diversity. I say, I'm very much interested in diversity. There's no diversity in that building, and I would love to be a resident director at the Alliance. And uh, she said, okay. So we, we applied. The committee came back and said, we love Kenny. He's great. But we want him to leave Atlanta. He has to leave Atlanta. He has to get familiar with the larger network of regional theaters. And and I said, but I wrote the grant to get through the doors of the Alliance Theater. And they said, no, we think you're talented, but you got to leave Atlanta. So I, uh, I left Atlanta, and they put me with um, Center Stage in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And I worked with Stan Wojewoski and studied there and met people like George Wolfe. They was doing his new play, The Color Museum. I met August Wilson. I met, you know, met Irene Lewis. So in hindsight... Was that a good thing that they forced you out of Atlanta? That's a great thing. Because what happened that year away, I learned so much about the networking, about theater and playwrights. I met August Wilson. The year away, then I was offered two or three jobs around the country. And one of them was to be associate artistic director at the Alliance Theater. And if you'd been sitting there, they might not have been so quick. No, because Timmy Neer, who was the associate artistic director, she was offered the artistic director's job at San Jose. So she went to San Jose. And while I was doing the the, uh, fellowship at Baltimore, uh, I took half of that year and went to San Jose with Timmy Hmm. because that happened in the middle of the year. At the end of that year, I was offered Timmy's old job. So I took that job at the Alliance. And then two years later, they did not renew the artistic director's contract. They had a national search for uh, a director, and they asked me to throw my hat in the ring. At that time, I knew about 60% of how to run a theater, 40% I had to fake myself through for the first two or three years. And so I ended up, in hindsight, with that job. So every time in my life when I have just trusted, you know, trusted God and trusted that things would happen and and not be held hostage by that false sense of security, it's always worked out. Even when I left the Alliance after 11 years, folks said, well, why did you leave the Alliance? That was a great job, and you were one of the good art- artistic directors in the country. And I was like, it was time to go. And because I left, that same year I was offered two Broadway shows in the same year, hmm. and I could not have done it if I was still running the Alliance. Well, let's not skip past the Alliance so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you directed plays there, you produced plays there, but... I think your legacy there that is is best known was your commitment and your very strenuous and directed efforts to bring diversity both to the stage and to the audience Mm -hmm. there. Um, That could not have been easy. And as you said, about four years in, subscriptions were dropping and – you needed to have that board listen to what Richard said. Um, in brief, what did you have to do to open up the doors of that theater? Um, number one, you had to uh, articulate a clear mission and vision and put it on paper so that everyone could buy into it. Part of that uh, mission was to diversify the board of directors. So the board had to look different. And at that time, I had the largest board in the country, you know, like 100 people oh, good gosh. on the board. Uh, I break out in hives just thinking about it. And I it. remember one of the things when my uh, uh, my grandmother uh, uh, passed away in 92, uh, uh, I started wearing these red uh, 
red Reeboks. And I started wearing them before that, but I started wearing these red Reeboks to remind me to always stay grounded and remember that I'm only just a, a country boy from Tallahassee, Florida. And uh, when I wear these tennis shoes with my tuxedos or suits or what have you, then even young kids would they would look at your shoes and start talking about your tennis shoes. And the next thing you can talk about life and you can talk about family and talk about anything. So to, to this day, I always wear tennis shoes with whatever I'm wearing. So it's a tribute to my grandmother and it's also a way to get into a conversation with young folks. Hmm. Uh, but I remember... You know, as time went on, I'm standing in front of that 100-member board of directors, and you got on a nice suit, and you got on a red Reebok. You can just see the look of those 100 people look at you and then get down to your feet. <laughs> what is wrong with him? But over time, they really bought into what we were trying to do. And Okay. Well, they bought into what you were trying to do. What did you have to do to change the audience? I had to diversify the audience, and I had to diversify the work on the stage. In order to diversify the audience, especially in a southern town like Atlanta, the home of uh, Dr. King, uh, the city too busy to hate. Uh, but in Atlanta, the uh, political base is black and the economic base is white. Hmm. So in order to invite new subscribers to the theater, to invite new African-Americans to the theater, there must be an invitation. There must be an invitation that they feel is real. So you have to come up with marketing plans that th that they can get. They're not going to open the Atlanta Journal-Constitution or the New York Times or whatever to see, to read about theater. So you have to say, oh, where do they get it? They get it in the barbershop. They get it in the churches. So you have to really diversify the whole marketing plan so that there's true invitation to the community. Also, at the same time, you have to make the traditional audience feel secure, feel safe, let them know that you're not taking anything away from them. So it's very hard in the early days. If you produce 11 plays in a year and you do two plays by an African-American to the white traditional audience, that feels like like you're doing five plays. I grew up in New Haven and remember when Lloyd Richards took over Yale Rep and mm -hmm. that same experience yeah. occurred. Lloyd, Lloyd faced those same challenges. Yeah, I had death threats. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm just an artistic director. Come on. And, you know, death threats for just diversifying the programming. And then I realized, like, no, what are you, you're on the planet to make a difference, you know. So my work has always been, you know, been about I have to have a reason that I'm doing the plays. I cannot do a play or do a film just to make money. I have to do it because I think I can affect some change or I can bring some joy. And... Um, you know, so that's always guided me. And hmm. so I realized, ah, don't worry about this guy who has, who has a death threat. That's that's silly. You know, hmm. it's more important to diversify the theater to have uh, the whole community sit in the theater and know that the world is better because they sat in the dark together and rubbed up against each hmm. other and saw. Uh, I have a I have a T-shirt that says, "Film is art, theater is life, television is furniture." Hmm. But oh, but if theater is really life, then we need to invite the whole community. And if it's life, we need to tell everybody's stories. Was the process an evolution or were there one or two watershed moments that really moved things forward? No, it was an evolution. I mean, it started out, it was great in the beginning because uh, the folks in Atlanta loved my work. So it had been, I had critically acclaimed productions of different plays. So they were like, wow, this big theater chooses one of their own. It's great. So everybody was excited by that. And then I think after two or three years, and they said, well, wait a minute. He, maybe he's doing too many classical plays or he's doing too many plays but African stories. Or he, I remember one year where I did an August Wilson play, A Raisin in the Sun, and a new play by Pearl Clegg. And you did eight other plays, traditional plays. And I was like, how is that too much? Raising the sun, you can't really say that's a political, you know. So anyway. Um, you say it was just an evolution. There <laughs> yeah, wasn't a single evolution. play that suddenly. Yeah. And, and I learned, like there were so many uh, people that I love who were non-African Americans who they felt like, Kenny, maybe you are doing too much. And I was like, why would you think that? You know hmm. me. You trust me. So I learned that uh, making people feel safe and good. So it was important. It was important to me 
to really nurture both communities at the same time. And sometimes as a leader, sometimes you're not thinking about the the community that's been there and supporting the theater. You're thinking like, wait a minute, we just need to invite these other people. But if I had to do it again or afford another opportunity, I would always remember you need to nurture those that are giving and you need to nurture those who are new to the theater equally. So you have to spend time in both communities. You were very public about those efforts. Mm-hmm. There was a tension. I remember seeing you on CBS Sunday morning Absolutely. once upon a time. Mm-hmm. Um, did did your work as the producer of that theater and your desire to change who was coming to that theater and what that theater did, did that in any way impinge on your ability to grow simply as a director who wanted to explore work? Did your mind have to be more on the producer role than the director role? Uh, yeah, absolutely. But I would not uh, – I don't, I don't have any regrets. I love that. That made me who I am. Uh, I thought those uh, battles worth fighting. So um, it, it, it was great. But, you know, near the end, uh, my, my growth as an artist – suffered because you had to spend uh, a great deal of time raising money. So, the, the you know, uh, raising money for a nonprofit is, you know, that's a job in and of itself. And so you always need a, a, a great staff and a great managing director to accomplish that. And I found that I was spending a little more time on the, on the fundraising part, and which is why I felt it was time to leave. And I felt like all the things that I wanted to do, diversifying the staff, diversifying the work, diversifying the board, we had done that. And I felt that, you know, if I could hand this baton off to someone else, maybe they could take that further. And I was pretty sure, because uh, after me, Susan Booth became artistic director. I said, oh, wow, a white woman. Boy, if she stands on the ceiling of what, we, what we've done all these years, then it can really, uh, she can really take that further, you know. And, uh, and so I'm hoping and pulling that they keep trying to do that. You know, I think that we we brought a lot of a national attention to the theater. <clears throat> and it's interesting, uh, after, you know, I, I remember getting several calls um, after the Alliance won the uh, Regional Tony Award, and they said, well, we want you to know that was part of all of the work that you did as well, you know. And, and I do see it as a continuum of process, you know what I mean? Like, and I'm still, from the outside, I'm just, I just hope they don't lose sight of how important diversity is. Mm. And, and it gets hard because, you know, you're fighting the economy and you fight all things. And sometimes the, 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 the first thing to go is your vision, your, your uh, insight about what makes us good, those values that you can't put a dollar on, you know. So I worry about that sometimes. After 11 years, you did something – you didn't leave to go run a larger theater. You weren't offered another job. Right. You chose to leave, but you did what seems sort of counterintuitive because a year later, if I have it right, you founded a small theater company, the True Colors Theater Company in Atlanta. Why, if you've just stepped down from <laughs> running an institution, diversifying an audience, the the grind of raising money is getting to you. You have gotten national attention. You're starting to get, you know, commercial gigs. Why on earth would you start another theater company? God knows. <laughs> <laughs> Can you elaborate on that? I, all I know is I ran into a a, 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 a guy who used to be board president of an arena stage. His name is Riley Temple. A very successful lawyer, and he said, "So, what are you going to do next? You know what this country needs is a national black theater." And I said, "Riley, I don't, I don't you know, I don't want to start a national black theater. I'm, I'm more interested in uh, diverse theater. I'm interested in, the, I'm interested in black culture, but I don't know about, I don't know about that." And then Ranch's other guy, Chris Manos, who runs Theater of the Stars, and he says, "Kenny, you know." You really should stay in Atlanta and you should start your own company. You know, if if you were smart, you know, smart businessman, you should, you should, you, you're in a position to start your own company. I said, Chris, I don't want to start a company. So you got a white guy and a black guy, both successful, both telling me you should do it. So I, I, so I did an exercise. I said, you know what, if I were to start a theater company, what would it look like? And so I just started. You know, drawing things down. I called up uh, Lloyd Richards. I called Zelda Fitch Handler. I said, "What was the challenges of starting theater companies?" What you know, 
And, you know, they said, well, you know, you always need a person on the financial side who's just as good as the person on the artistic side. And they would give me, you know, so I put all that together. And if I was going to do a theater, what would it look like? And I, next thing I know, I'm writing mission statements. <laughs> I'm like saying, well, maybe the co- country doesn't need a national black theater. It needs a national company of diversity. So what if you had to make a company look like the world? What would that look like? So then I said, wow, well, let's see. The void in the country is African-American classics, because if you ask the average person what an African-American classic is, they would say, well, that's uh, Raising in the Sun. And then they would go blank. And I was like, You wow. might get soldiers play. You might get soldiers play. But you got First Breeze of Summer, Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death, Blues of Mr. Charlie. You got so many. So I found out then in my research, I said, wow, as soon as African-Americans sort of like die, their stories go. Because the larger white theaters, they can't diversify enough. They can only do, they diversify around the edges. They do most Anglo-American work and they do one or two plays, one by black, one by Hispanic, maybe not in the same year, you know. And then the culturally specific theaters were having a difficult time being funded. So they were dying, you know, Crossroads Theater, Jumanji Theater, they were dying. So I was like, wow, there is a void for something. There's a void and a need for something in our country. What would that look like? Okay, what if I could start a theater company that whose mission is to preserve African-American classics and introduce those plays to a new generation of people. Most of those plays, the language is good. Some of it's like got a lot of balance of humor and drama. And so I said, okay, I'm going to do that. But I don't want to do black plays for black people. So then I want to diversify around the edges the opposite way. So I want to flip the traditional model. So preservation of African-American classics at the center, and then I want to produce plays by everybody on the exterior. So then I can invite uh, whites and others to to the plays presented by the city. So we might do uh, a multiracial production of Medea. We may do uh, uh, Brassburgs Don't Sing, which is Sam R. Williams' play. He's an African-American writer, but it's all Jewish characters. Mm. Uh, we may do a partnership with the Jewish Theater of the South and you know Southwest Atlanta. So you got Jewish folks and African-Americans doing something You're together. speaking of white and black. Do you range into Latino and Asian and... Yes, we do, but we, but the key is, especially since you know Atlanta and the South is, is number one a black white thing. We start there, and then we start eventually doing getting into everybody. So we, you know, so we when we like Medea, that was like Asians, Hispanics, blacks, and whites. You mm-hmm. know, uh, and we do an August Wilson stuff. We do uh, uh, James Baldwin. We do Zora Neale Hurston. We try to do it. So it gave it gave the a need for the company. And when we first started, we were going to do it in three cities. We were going to do it in Atlanta, D.C., and New York. But because of the economy turn, we haven't been able to to thrive in all three cities. I believe it's a True Colors. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. You did a multiracial Our Town. Yes. Um, Something I'm curious about, since we certainly started and so much talking about August Wilson, was August famously said he did not believe Mm -hmm. that black actors should take on roles in white plays. He didn't Mm -hmm. believe that there should be a black death of a salesman. Obviously, your response to that is different. Absolutely. But August and I had discussions about that. I'd like to hear because, about that. Um, and I think that a lot of times August said things to make change. You know, it's like folks say that August didn't want whites to direct his plays. That was absolutely not true. Hmm. You know, Irene Lewis directed his plays. You know, they had uh, a white guy direct his plays in South Africa in Johannesburg when I saw that. He's let many white directors direct his plays, but he was trying to make a point. You know, like when he tried to get Fences the movie made and and he went to the Hollywood types and he says, well, I want this guy to be on the list to direct his plays. And they were like, well, no, August, we just want the best director. He said, well, what defines the best director? And that was code word for not black. And so August would say if he told them, go out, bring me a list of 50 of, of the directors you want to consider. And 50 directors and not one of those people were African-American, then something's wrong with that. Or if you say, like he would say to me, Kenny Leon, you run a theater in the South. You did the work of Tennessee Williams. You did workshops of Tennessee Williams at Cornell. You taught, you know, the poetry of Tennessee Williams. You, But... In New York, if they did five productions of Tennessee Williams in the same year, you would still would not get a call. They because not that it's overt racism; it just not wouldn't occur to them. Like 
called the guy who's the artistic director of the biggest theater in the South, and you know, because they look at African Americans uh, directors in a different way. They don't look at you and say, "Oh, well, you you do the those serious dramas, you do those serious plays by August Wilson." So the thing what August was trying to get you to see was that, you know, we have a serious race problem in the country. And 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 we're not really talking about it, you know, if we're not putting everything on the table, you know. So I think, and I think that uh, I think that um, he was uh, disappointed that most of the dollars were going to large white regional theaters, and very few dollars were going to small culturally specific uh, theaters, and that um, directors and actors. Uh, uh, writers weren't getting opportunities. So, but if you ask me, if what I think about non-traditional casting, I think that uh, I don't believe in blind casting. I think that uh, in some situations, you know, anybody can do Shakespeare. You know, I've saw some great productions of Shakespeare with you know African Americans and mixed companies. So it's like, and we're not um, we're not British either. So it's like uh, I, I disagree with that. But I think sometimes the uh, the fear is if you just uh, if you put black people in other plays, there will be no need for the black writer because given their druthers, a lot of uh, producers would not produce the black play. That's a very interesting and way I of explaining that it. Was, you know, yeah. that's the fear and that's, you know. So let me ask you, you talked about that opportunities began for you in New York. Fences is your fourth Broadway show. Mm-hmm. You began with Raisin in the Sun, which is a touchstone of African-American dramatic literature uh and indeed lloyd richards goes back to that you know it's it seems there's a small circle you've done now your third august wilson play on broadway Mm -hmm. do you think there are opportunities for you in the commercial world to do work beyond african-american playwrights or do you think there is still the case of people don't think about it because all of these productions have been acclaimed. I think people don't think about it. But I think there – I'm hoping there will be some opportunities coming up, you know, and it's not like I don't want to do – the the August Wilson and the Lorraine no, Hansberg, but it's like you want more opportunities. Like I, I want to be in that army of of uh, directors, uh, you know, who who get first dibs on all the work, and there are a handful of directors that really, you know, you know, Bart's here and Doug Hughes and these guys, and I love them. I respect their work. Uh, Mark Lamos, they work, you know. And I, I just want the same opportunity to be able to do, you know, two or three Broadway shows in a season. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking that's going to happen because I think my work is – some of my work is black, but my most of my work is human. And uh, that's where I live, you know, and trying to make a difference in the lives of humans. And I do, you know, I do musicals. I do dramas. I do comedies. And um, – Sometimes the complexion of the folks are different. But when I did Our Town, that's one of the best productions I've done. I actually divided the, the role of the stage manager into two roles. You know, act, didn't change a word in the script. You got a 65-year-old black actor playing the stage manager and a 30-year-old white uh, actor playing the role. But they they came off as one and also separate. It was beautiful. And I added music to it as well. It was but what papers. was the impulse behind that? What did you what Because did you I feel like when the stage manager is talking, if he's talking to another individual on stage and they're talking to the audience, it makes it more intimate. It makes the idea of us all in the world together, it makes it uh, more believable. It makes everybody feel more included. I've seen our time a million times, but not until I... Uh, culturally diversified it and and mixed it up a little bit gender-wise, then I say, oh, that includes me. So then I got I got the spiritual connection. I got the idea of how human beings waste time. I got the idea how racism is a waste of our time. And so when you take that thing out of, because you know it's it's not like it's not like our town really existed. You know we're making it up anyway. But you, when you when you mix it up to include more of the people, then more of the people can receive the message. It's like, wow, I am a human in that world. Small town is can be any town. Hmm. With your success here in New York, as you said, you've not been able to expand true colors in the way you initially planned to, and you certainly hope that that opportunity will come along. Does the success in New York for the work you're doing here reflect back upon? 
the opportunities that you have for your company in Atlanta? Well, I think the company is, is pretty amazing. We're like a, what, a $2 million annual budget now, hmm. which is, you know, and we're in the black during all this economic struggle. So I'm really thankful. And I do, I, I do think there's connection between what I do commercially and what I do uh, back in Atlanta. Hmm. And so, you know, and, and things are going well. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm set to do this uh, Katori Halls. Uh, the mountaintop. Uh, the mountaintop coming up, and I'm looking forward to that. And that probably will be somewhat controversial just because you're dealing with the iconic nature of Dr. King. And there, you know, there are many in the African-American community that, you know, when, when you can't touch that. What are, you, what are you saying about that? And this is really? – and the premise of the story is that Dr. King, at, at the last night of his life, and he's uh, – and in and his hotel room with a, a hotel maid. So when folks hear that, a hotel maid, Dr. King, you know. But uh, the the story that's underneath that is that the woman in the hotel is actually an angel that God has sent to bring Dr. Have King. Have you just given something side. away? No, not really. <laughs> that, you'll know that in the first five minutes of okay, the Okay, just checking. Um, but I think when people hear that, it's like, wow. You know, because... I was not interested. When my agent presented it to me, I was not interested in doing the life of Dr. King. I said, it, it only can work if it's a fantasy, if it didn't happen, that, thereby giving us an opportunity to uplift those values that were important to Dr. King, but introducing him to a new generation of people. I hmm. want to introduce Dr. King to 20-year-olds who really don't know him, and it's hard for them to, to know him if he's somebody they can't touch. And so if you, if you uh, elevate that which is human and that which is universal, then you get a shot at really knowing and understanding those themes and values that were so important to him. Yet through a fictional encounter. Yes. In, very interesting. Do you, do you think you will, the production will have to make clear up front? You said that uh, you know, no. there's, there's a potential for people being unhappy. I think controversy with, is good. Okay. So you're just then I'll say, come to see the play. let him see it, come and then talk it. about it as they see fit. Yeah. Other projects in the wings? Oh yeah, we're working on. Uh, you know, um, uh, I'm committed to do the revival of Sleuth, which, which is coming up, and uh, we'll see when that happens. Um, I've been developing a uh, a musical uh, using the music of uh, Tupac Shakur hmm. to uh, to do a musical about his life, but I don't. It's not going to be. East Coast, West Coast are telling that story. It's going to be using his music, but to elevate the universal. Mm. And uh, Tupac was really a, a prophet, and many people don't they, – they can't get through it because they see him as, oh, he's a rapper, he's a, he's a gangster. And, but really underneath that, he was just writing about the specifics of his neighborhood. And But through that writing, there's a big universal thing and understanding for all of us. You know, he wrote he wrote songs about mothers and love for mothers. He wrote songs for love for brother, uh, songs about spirituality. And in many ways, he's not he's he's like August Wilson, but different. August writes mm. about Pittsburgh, and he writes about inner city. Mm. So looking at that, you're doing a musical of Drumline, the musical based on the movie. Uh, I, I would love to do a feature film this year as well. And were you going to be directing? Um there had been talk of um, Todd Creedler, who I don't think we've mentioned by name, Todd. but but August's um, mm-hmm. dramaturg. Todd was going to be doing an adaptation of the film. Uh, Guess who's coming Guess to dinner? dinner? And is that something you were going to be involved in that as well? Yeah. In fact, I, I introduced that. Uh, I was hired by the producer to uh, do that, and we were going to do that last year. And then I brought Todd Creidler, and and then um, um, me and the producer went separate ways. Aha! Uh-huh. Todd is still. Uh, still the writer of record on it but it's a beautiful beautiful project and i, I just hope the uh producer i hope he i hope he gets it done you know because i really love it and you know maybe a bit opportunity for it to come back around but it's a it's a great production and it's funny because august was so close to todd and i was close to todd i was close to august in the end and is when when august uh, passed away you know it's like wow what's this kid going to do and i i hired him this is what 35 year old white guy hired him to be the associate artistic director at the true color theater company and we've done some incredible work together. We started the August Wilson monologue competition together. He worked on the production of Fences there. And he's just an amazing, amazing writer. And I think the world is going to be really surprised in the two or three years. They're going to say, wow, Todd Crowley is an incredible, incredible writer. Hmm. 
And do you think there might ever be a sixth production of Fences for you? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I'll never say never. I think there will definitely be a revival, uh, hopefully a commercial revival of uh, some of the other work. Um, uh, it's hard to say right now uh, another production of Fences because I'm so living in the moment of this and I really can't see uh, I, I can only see Denzel walk in those shoes right now and Viola and Steven. So I think I'm going to have to give that a little space before I can answer that. All right. Well, congratulations thank on the production so of Fences. And Kenny Leon, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you, Howard. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow... Follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of the Wings fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.